This is I Made a Biology Podcast to help me study, and today I'm covering 6.6, homeostasis. This is the last topic in the entire SL syllabus, and also the last topic in Unit 6, um, and probably the last one that I will be recording, as my exam is the day after tomorrow, and this is as far as I was able to get. Um, this begins, or actually no, the whole topic is very focused on a lot of hormones. So that's the main focus, as well as the menstrual cycle and um, a bit of reproduction. So it begins with insulin and glucagon. These two hormones are released from pancreatic pits and primarily, primarily act on the liver. Uh, they are antagonistic, meaning that as one increases, the other decreases and vice versa. So when blood glucose levels are high, for example, once you've eaten food, insulin is released from beta cells of the pancreas and it causes a decrease in blood glucose levels. The way that it causes this decrease is by stimulating glycogen synthesis in the liver or promoting glucose uptake by the liver and adipose tissue or increasing the rate of glucose breakdown. Stimulating glycogen synthesis is going to decrease the blood glucose concentration as that's going to put the glucose um, to storage because glycogen is storage. And um, promoting glucose uptake means that more glucose is being um, taken away from the blood, so again, decreasing the amount in the blood. And by breaking glucose down, it's not going to have the same effect on the blood glucose concentration. So again, insulin is released when blood glucose levels are high and it causes a decrease in blood glucose concentration. However, when blood glucose levels are high, for example, after exercise, glucagon is released from the alpha cells of the pancreas and causes an increase in the blood glucose levels. And that may involve stimulating glycogen breakdown because it was synthesized before for energy, so now it will be broken down to source that energy. Um, and might, pr might promote glucose release by the liver. So before it was being taken up and now it's being released, um, the liver or the adipose tissue, or decreasing the rate of glucose breakdown. So essentially the, the uh, process that occurs for either is reversed. So again, when blood glucose levels are low, glucagon is released from the alpha cells of the pancreas to increase blood glucose concentration. And the main ways that this happens is by stimulating glycogen synthesis or breakdown, promoting glucose release or uptake, and decreasing or increasing the rate of glucose breakdown. So this topic of blood glucose levels is closely linked to diabetes. Um, and this is a metabolic disorder that results from a high blood glucose concentration over an extended period of time. So there's two main types. It, it could be caused by the body not producing insulin, which would be type 1, um, or failing to respond to insulin production, which would be type 2. It is treated with insulin injections for type 1 or by careful monitoring for type 2. So type 1 usually occurs during childhood. Um, it's often genetically inherited. And the body does not produce um, sufficient insulin as a result of this. So the, that means the body can't lower the blood glucose levels on its own. Um, it's caused by the destruction of the beta cells 
That's why it's an autoimmune disorder and it requires insulin injections to regulate the blood glucose. But generally, it's quite, um, it's quite easy to manage with these injections. And type 2 is not insulin dependent and it's usually, it usually occurs during adulthood and it's because the body doesn't respond to the insulin production. So your body is producing insulin, but it's not responding to it and therefore it's not having the effect it needs to have. And it's caused by the downregulation of insulin receptors, and that's often due to poor diet and lifestyle. And that's why the control and the treatment of it is really dramatically changing uh, the diet and lifestyle and closely monitoring, monitoring the um, blood glucose levels at all times. Now moving on to thyroxine. This hormone is secreted from the thyroid gland. And it responds to signals derived from the hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain. Its primary role is to increase the basal metabolic rate. So that's the amount of energy that the body's using at rest. And the way that this happens is by increasing the metabolic activity, and that's going to cause the production of heat. So that's why thyroxine helps to control body temperature. So by stimulating the uh, by increasing the metabolic activity heat is produced which allows thyroxine to um, impact the body temperature and also cause an increase in that thyroxine is released in response to a decrease in body temperature which is why it will then stimulate the heat production now moving on to leptin this is a hormone produced by adipose cells that regulates fat stores within the body and suppresses appetite so what it does is it binds to receptors in the hypothalamus and inhibits ap appetite, thereby reducing the food intake. So by inhibiting appetite, it tells the body that they shouldn't consume any more food, and that's what makes people feel full or satisfied. These adipose cells form as a result of eating and eating a lot. So when you overeat, these adipose tissues will uh, adipose cells will form, and then more leptin will be produced because of the formation of these adipose cells. And that is what's going to suppress your appetite. And then in the reverse, if you don't eat enough, that's going to reduce the adipose tissue, which means that there's going to be less leptin, and therefore you're going to be hungry. So Increase in adipose tissue forming is due to a lot of eating and that leads to increased leptin to suppress your appetite. And a decrease in eating is going to reduce the adipose tissue and therefore less leptin will be reduced, uh, released and you will be hungry. However, as obese people or overweight people um, are producing a lot and a lot of leptin because they're eating so much, their body is going to become desensitized to the hormone. And that means they, they won't be able to react to it anymore and they won't have the feeling of being satisfied and they'll just continue eating. So nothing will be able to inhibit their appetite. That's why they might feel hungry when they really have eaten plenty of food. Leptin resistance can also develop with age, so that's why it's very common to gain weight at an older age. Now, there is an application in this section um, related to leptin, and it's with the experiments on mice. So because leptin suppresses appetite, it was considered a form of treatment for people that have clinical obesity. So what the idea was is that leptin injections would reduce hunger, 
and limit the food intake in an obese person and that would allow them to lose weight. So this was tested on mice by surgically fusing um, the blood circulation of two mice, one being obese and one being healthy. And the obese mice were either obese because they had a leptin gene mutation or a defective leptin receptor. And then what happened in the obese mouse with no leptin is that the leptin in the blood of the healthy mouse was transferred to the obese mouse. And the obese mouse actually responded to the leptin and began to lose weight, which showed the viability of the leptin treatment. However, this was for the obese mouse that did not produce leptin. It wasn't because the obese mouse didn't respond to it, um, it just didn't produce it, which means that by giving it to the mouse, it helped it to become healthy. However, when the other mouse, the one that is um, desensitized to leptin, um, was bound to a healthy mouse, the leptin was transferred to the healthy mouse and the obese mouse remained obese and because its body couldn't respond to the leptin. However, the leptin does act on the healthy mouse because, again, it's healthy and it does react to leptin, so the high levels of leptin cause it to lose far too much weight and the leptin didn't have any effect on the obese mouse, which, is, which was kind of the goal of the whole thing. So what that meant was that the leptin only works as a viable um, reduction of weight or helps to lose weight when an organism doesn't produce leptin, not when it doesn't respond to leptin. Because I guess it makes sense in a way anyway, because if it doesn't respond to leptin, it doesn't matter how much you give it, it's not going to respond. But if it doesn't produce leptin, um, it's, going to, it's going to react positively to it. So as a result, the... Um, obese mouse that did not produce leptin became healthy and the obese mouse that doesn't respond um, stayed the same but the healthy mouse actually lost too much weight. When this was applied to humans most people did not experience significant weight loss because most cases of obesity are due to the desensitized leptin and not due to leptin deficiency. So it wasn't proved very effective, especially because it also had adverse side effects such as skin irritations. So as a result, leptin treatments aren't actually considered an effective way of controlling obesity. Now the next hormone is melatonin and this is produced by the pineal gland in the brain and it responds to changes in light. It's therefore secreted in response to periods of darkness and that's why there are higher concentrations of melatonin at night. The secretion of melatonin plays a role in the control of a circadian rhythm, and the circadian rhythms are the body's physiological responses to the 24-hour day and night cycle. And the melatonin is a hormone responsible for synchronizing these circadian rhythms, which is going to regulate the sleep schedule. Melatonin secretion is suppressed by the bright light, and that's why the levels increase during the night. But over time, it becomes um, trained in a way and can anticipate when the darkness is going to occur and when the light periods are going to occur. And that's why it can influence the sleep schedule. Melatonin levels may also naturally decrease with age, which leads to changes in the sleeping patterns in the elderly. An application of this is the causes of jet lag and the use of melatonin to alleviate it. So I'm sure you all know what jet lag is, but 
it's a physiological condition that results in the change to the body's normal circadian rhythm, so a change in the sleep schedule. And this causes the body to be unable to quickly adjust to the new time zone and sleep properly. Taking melatonin near the time of sleep in the new area, so the new time zone, can help to recalibrate the body in a way. So by artificially increasing melatonin levels at the new nighttime, the body can respond quickly to the new schedule. Now moving on to sexual reproduction and an application of it um, in which it talks about William Harvey's investigation of sexual reproduction in deer. William Harvey um, was the one who established that sexual reproduction did not actually occur the way that it had been um, said to occur with the soil and seed theory. And he studied the sexual organs of a female deer and after mating, um, he tried to identify the development of an embryo, but he couldn't detect one until six to seven weeks after the mating. So that's how he debunked the original soil and seed theory, which assumed that the male produces a seed, which forms an egg, and then that's mixed with the menstrual blood, or the soil, um, and that the egg would then develop into a fetus inside the mother, according to the information in the male seed. So it was purely based on the male, and when we think about it now, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But with this discovery about the six to seven weeks, um, Harvey was able to identify that menstrual blood couldn't contribute to the development of a fetus. And as you might know as well, when a woman is pregnant, she actually shouldn't be menstruating, um, and the release of blood will actually be a sign of a miscarriage. So our understanding of the modern form of sexual reproduction is that the fetus forms from a combination of both the male and female gametes. Now moving on to sex development. So we know that humans have 46 chromosomes in all diploid somatic cells, and then 22 of these are autosomes, and the 23rd pair are the sex chromosomes. The sex chromosomes for females are XX, and the sex chromosomes for males are XY, and the Y chromosome is generally much shorter than the X chromosome, and therefore carries less genes. The Y chromosome also includes a gene called the sex-determining region Y. It's known as the SRY gene, and that leads to male development. And it codes for the testes-determining factor, the TDF, which is going to cause the formation of the testes, specifically causing the embryonic gonads to form into the testes. And in the absence of the TDF protein, so there's no Y chromosome, the embryonic gonads will develop into ovaries. So the SRY gene codes for the TDF protein, which is why the embryonic gonads can form testes in males. And the absence of the TDF protein, because there's no Y chromosome and no SRY gene that is coding for TDF, will lead to the embryonic gonads to develop into ovaries, which is in a female. There are other hormones that will further contribute to the development of each sex. So the testes produce testosterone, which promotes the further development of male sex characteristics, and the ovaries will produce estrogen and progesterone to promote the development of the female sex characteristics. 
the main male reproductive hormone is testosterone. So that's the main one. And it's secreted by the testes and its role is for the prenatal development of the male genitalia. It's involved in the sperm production following the onset of puberty. Um, so that's usually in the teen years. It also aids the development of any secondary sex characteristics such as body hair, muscle mass, deepening of the voice, and it helps to maintain the sex drive, which is libido or libido, I'm not sure. And similarly, for females, the main reproductive hormones are estrogen and progesterone secreted by the ovaries. <clears throat> and they also promote the prenatal development of the female reproductive organs. They're also responsible for the secondary sex characteristics, such as the body hair and breast development. And they're also involved in the monthly preparation of egg, which is released via um, the menstrual cycle following puberty as well. So they pretty much have the same roles, just that one applies to males and one applies to females. Now moving on to the male reproductive system. So for this, you need to be able to annotate the diagram of a male reproductive system and know the structures and functions. So beginning with the testes, because we've already discussed it, um, they are responsible for the production of sperm and testosterone. Then the epididymis, which is where the sperm matures and develops the ability to be motile, and is also where the mature sperm is stored until ejaculation. So the epididymis is on the same uh, structure of the uh, testes. The vas deferens, or the sperm duct, is the long tube which connects the sperm from the testes to the prostate gland. So that's where the sperm will travel. Um, and that's also going to connect to the urethra after. Then the seminal vesicle secretes fluid containing fructose, which nourishes the sperm, mucose, which protects the sperm, and prostaglandin, which triggers uterine contractions. So again, the seminal vesicle secretes fluids containing fructose for nourishment, mucose for protection, and prostaglandin to trigger uterine contractions. I'm pretty sure that it's relevant enough if you just know that the seminal vesicle secretes fluids containing fructose, mucose, and prostaglandin. Or just say that, the uh, that it secretes fluid to nourish, protect, uh, nourish and protect the sperm. So I wouldn't worry too much about the details, but it will definitely um, help you if you do know them. So there's no harm in that. And then the prostate gland secretes an alkaline fluid, which neutralizes the vaginal acids. Um, and that's necessary to maintain the viability of sperm. And then lastly, the urethra conducts sperm or semen from the prostate gland to the outside of the body via the penis. And this is also where urine would travel. And now moving on to the female reproductive system. Again, you're going to be able to have to, uh, you have to be able to annotate a diagram with the functions of this. So first you have the ovary, and this is where the oocytes mature prior to the release during ovulation. It's also responsible for estrogen and progesterone secretion. Then you have the fimbria and pleural fimbriae, and these are a fringe of tissue right next to the ovary, and they help to sweep an oocyte into the oviduct. The oviduct, or the fallopian tube, transports the oocyte to the uterus, and it's also typically where fertilization will occur. And the uterus is the organ where a fertilized egg will then implant and develop, and that's how it becomes an embryo. 
The endometrium is the mucous membrane lining of the uterus and it thickens in preparation for implantation or is otherwise lost via menstruation. So the lining of that. And then the vagina is the passage which allows the penis to enter. Now moving on to the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle describes the changes that occur in the female reproductive system that allow pregnancy to be possible. And it happens every month and usually lasts around 28 days. And it will begin at puberty in a woman. And it will end with menopause. There are two key groups of hormones which control this cycle. So these are the pituitary, pituitary hormones, FSH and LH. Um, which represents follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, and the ovarian hormones, which are estrogen and progesterone. I'm pretty confident that you can refer to them as FSH and LH, so don't be concerned about remembering the full uh, word. So there are four main stages to the menstrual cycle. There's the follicular phase, ovulation, the luteal phase, and menstruation. So in the first phase, Follic the follicle-stimulating hormone, so FSH, is secreted from the pituitary glands and stimulates um, the growth of the ovarian follicles. Then there will be a dominant follicle, so maybe the one that's growing the best or the fastest, and that is going to produce estrogen, which will inhibit FSH secretion, causing negative feedback. And that's going to prevent other follicles from growing. So negative feedback is when the effect of something uh, lowers the impact of something else. So as one thing increases, the other thing decreasing decreases. So the dominant follicle that happens as a result of the growth of the ovarian follicles will produce estrogen, which will inhibit the FSH secretion, causing negative feedback and preventing other follicles from growing. Estrogen acts on the uterus to stimulate the thickening of the endometrial layer. So now that brings us to the second stage, which is ovulation. And approaching ovulation, estrogen levels will rise, creating positive feedback with the LH. So that means that as the estrogen increases, the LH levels also increase. The LH causes the dominant follicle to rupture and release an egg, which is the secondary oocyte. And the release of this secondary oocyte is ovulation. That brings us to the third phase, the luteal phase. So the ruptured follicle will develop into the degenerating corpus, corpus, corpus luteum, and it's going to secrete high levels of progesterone and a bit of lower levels of estrogen. So the ruptured follicle develops into the degenerating corpus luteum, which will, which will secrete high progesterone and low estrogen. The estrogen and progesterone will act on the uterus and thicken the endometrial lining, which would prepare the body for, for pregnancy. Estrogen and progesterone will also inhibit the secretion of FSH and LH because that's going to prevent any additional follicles from developing because the um, secondary oocyte has been released. And that brings us to the last stage, which is menstruation. So if fertilization does occur, then the developing embryo will implant in the endometrium and that could potentially um, contribute to a successful pregnancy. 
However, if fertilization doesn't occur, then the corpus, corpus luteum will eventually degenerate. And when it degenerates, the estrogen and progesterone levels fall, so the endometrium won't be maintained anymore. And it's going to uh, fall and be released from the body as menstrual blood. So the menstrual blood consists of the, the endometrial lining that is being released from the body because it's not needed for pregnancy. And then because the estrogen and progesterone levels are low, uh, they can't inhibit anymore and the cycle will begin again with LH and FSH. So let's review that again. So we have the follicular phase, the ovulation phase, the luteal phase, and menstruation. So in the follicular phase, which is the very beginning, FSH is secreted and it stimulates the growth of a lot of follicles. And then one follicle will be dominant and it will produce estrogen. And that's going to inhibit FSH through negative feedback to prevent other follicles from growing. And the estrogen will also thicken the endometrium. And then during ovulation, estrogen levels will rise and they will create positive feedback with LH. So as the estrogen levels rise, the LH levels rise. And the process of ovulation is when LH causes the dominant follicle to rupture and release an egg. Because of the positive feedback, the levels of LH will be higher than those of FSH. And uh, the actual ovulation is the rupturing the release of the secondary oocyte from the dominant follicle. And that brings us again to the luteal phase where the follicle, the ruptured one, will develop into the degenerating corpus luteum. And that secretes high levels of progesterone and estrogen, but at lower levels. And then they will act on the uterus to thicken the lining further. And they will also inhibit FSH and LH for no more follicles. And lastly, in menstruation, um, if fertilization occurs, then an embryo can develop. And if it doesn't, the corpus luteum will degenerate and all the, the uh, estrogen and progesterone levels will fall. So they can't inhibit anymore. And then it will begin again. And menstruation is the release of the endometrial lining, which wasn't needed because there was no fertilization. So that summarizes the menstrual cycle. There's also a graph that can help you to understand the movement of uh, the increase and decrease of the hormones. And then for the very last idea in this topic is IVF and the use of IVF to cause pregnancy. So what IVF does, oh, it's known as in vitro fertilization, by the way, it refers to the fertilization that occurs outside of the body. And it involves drugs which will suspend the normal ovulation and then using hormone treatments to... Um, induce superovulation. So superovulation means that you're using artificial doses of hormones to develop and collect multiple eggs from the woman. The patient will receive lots of FSH to stimulate the follicle production and then HCG will be used to mature these follicles and then an egg can be collected with a needle. Then that leads to fertilization where the extracted eggs are incubated with a sperm sample and these are always closely analyzed with a microscope for the successful fertilization. And lastly, in the implantation, um, approximately two weeks before, the woman will take progesterone treatments to develop the endometrium, which we just learned is needed for pregnancy. And then the uh, embryo that successfully uh, fertilized can be transferred into the female uterus. And after around two weeks, if it was successful, then pregnancy is possible. 
So again, the steps of this would be to stop the normal menstrual cycle, then use the hormone treatments, so FSH um, and HCG to mature the follicles that were produced with FSH, then extracting an egg, incubating it with a sperm for fertilization, and taking a healthy embryo and inserting this into the uterus and testing if the pregnancy was successful. So that wraps up 6.6, the last unit of the SL syllabus, the last unit of um, human physiology. And I genuinely hope that all of these podcasts have been helpful. I'm sorry I couldn't do HL. I probably should have started earlier, but, you know, time management is not my thing. And, yeah, good luck to everyone, uh, whether you're doing this exam in 2021 or 2022 or 2023. Good luck and, yeah. Also, just FYI, the thing about finishing the HL topics still applies. So even if you're listening to this later on, if you ever wanted to do the podcast, uh, I'd be happy to add them. So yeah, just saying. Bye!